Welcome, my name is Mike, one of the pastors on staff here at Sower Church. It's an honor to be with you. It's an honor to be able to look at God's Word with you this morning. You might have missed me. I've been gone for a bit. I, I went on a trip. It took uh, 10 years to build the courage to go on that trip. I, it was a harrowing trip. It was scary. I went to an under-ranged, under-engaged people group. It, I needed a translator. I needed a guide. It took sacrifice, prayer, faith. It took 10 years to get the courage to go on this trip. And so um, I made it back. I made it back safely from Sunday school. Uh, it was good. It went well. <laughs> Nate was my mentor. It went well. So all of you that are heard rumblings of Sunday school, under-arranged, under-engaged people groups, I've seen it. I've lived it. I've returned to tell you about it. It was okay. And so one fun thing of Sunday school is I, I would get down on a knee because I'm a tall guy. Like that. And I'd be like, hey, 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 what's the password? What's the password? And so the, the week I went was Super Bowl Sunday. And they'd say they were confused because that wasn't normal for them. And so I would say, the Chiefs, the Chiefs stink. <laughs> Scripted. <laughs> the Chiefs stink, you know. And they're like, no, they don't. And so I'm just saying, like, men and women, got to reach them young. <laughs> you got to raise them right. And I know many of you think, you know, oh, no, no, my kid's an angel. Yeah, so is Lucifer. And, <laughs> and we have that. And we have that parenting conference coming up. So, no. <laughs> Some of your kids are great. Other kids need to sign up for that parenting conference. <laughs> Joking. Uh, so, speaking of the chief kingdom, uh, kingdom rhetoric is all throughout the book of Luke. See the, the pivot we made there? There's 30 times in the book of Luke the kingdom of God, the kingdom rhetoric is included in the book of Luke. It's a macro theme throughout the entire Bible. And that, that kingdom rhetoric has no bearings for our world. We don't live in a monarchy. There, the, there's several monarchies, kingdoms on the planet now, and we're not in a kingdom. We're in a democracy. Specifically, we're in a constitutional federal republic. When we hear kingdom rhetoric, kingdom language, it is a different culture that we're speaking to, and predominantly in history, a different day and age that we're speaking to. And so our title of this passage, this sermon is Kingdom Culture, uh, Luke 17, 20 through 37, which we just read, and it's in page 511 in the Blue House Bibles if you'd like to follow along. And so let's pray. God, thank you for the kingdom of God. Thank you for the culture of the kingdom and the king of the kingdom and how you've conquered the biggest problems we had as a people. I, I thank you that you want to use this passage in a powerful way in the hearts and the lives of your people. I ask that you use this passage in the hearts and lives of people that are not your people this morning. I ask that we would all see you clearer as we look through this passage. I pray that we would live an examined life, live a life under the authority of your word. I pray that you'd use this passage to encourage, instruct, correct, build us up, use this passage to do the work of God and the people of God using the word of God. We commit and pray in this time, dedicate it to you, make the most of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So kingdom. When you hear the word kingdom, you think things. When the Jewish people that heard this, Jesus say these words, heard the word kingdom, they would think of a combination of both culture and their politics, their political organization of a monarchy and their Jewish culture. That was a rich history of kings and, and conquering battles and all that. It was a huge part of their, their fabric of their culture, their country, and their political structure. That was a big deal for them. And so at the time of Luke 17, this kingdom debate was hotly contested. So getting Jesus' take on the kingdom of God was, would have been a tweet-worthy thing. This young rising rabbi and his take on this debate among Jews about this, this question about when would the kingdom of God come back? When will God bring back the kingdom of God 
for the nation of Israel that the Bible talks about all throughout the Old Testament. And there's a debate about if it will come back when the nation is repented, and that's when God will return, or it'll come back at a predetermined time set by God. And some folks never change. Repentance team and predetermined team are still hashing it out in American Christianity today. But when you think of kingdom, this mattered. Not just in the Old Testament, which we'll look at, but all throughout the cover to cover in the Bible. The first prototype kingdom, the original OG kingdom in the Bible, is in the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. You see Adam, you see his wife Eve, and you see God, they're living in paradise. And get this for a job description. This is, this is amazing. Your Bible is amazing. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. That's Bible speak for have sex and make babies. Like many of you are being fruitful and multiplying as a church. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. That's the job description. Tend the garden. So walk around and what are you tending in a perfect paradise garden? There's no weeds. You know, what are you tending? Uh, be fruitful, multiply, tend the garden and don't touch that tree. You know, that's the job description for Adam and he messed it up. And so in scripture, we see this macro theme of the kingdom of God from chapter to chapter, this macro theme. And to, when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you need to realize that that's God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people, God's place, God's rule. And you see that in the garden. Adam and Eve, God's place, paradise, under God's rule. They walked and talked to him at night. And so sin wrecked that first kingdom. Adam did the one thing he was not supposed to do. And paradise was lost and that story was over. But then God's story began of God redeeming and restoring the people of God to God's place under God's rule. And we see that story fulfilled for the rest of the Bible. It's a macro theme. And what threads that needle from the Old Testament to that New Testament that connects the Old to the New Testament is this kingdom rhetoric that John the Baptist talked about and Jesus talked about heavily. But going back again, Adam. Remember Adam? Then we go to Abraham. Remember? Father Abraham had many sons. Some of you want to clap in your hearts. You know? <laughs> hey, you had a, you, it's daylight savings. We're going to keep it spunky here, people. So, um, so Genesis 12. Abraham was promised people, a place, the promised land, descendants as much as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Abraham was promised a people and a place. Uh, later in Exodus, the people of God are under captivity in Egypt. And then those 10 plagues come out and Moses and Joshua lead them to the place, the promised land. And he said, you are my people and I am your God. And he lays out his rule through Leviticus and Numbers and the Ten Commandments, do you get what I'm saying? The people of God, the place of God, and the rule of God is a macro thing of this kingdom rhetoric. Think of Saul and David and all those kings that were terrible after Saul and David. There's this chronic human kingly failure, chapter after chapter. But a future perfect king, the rule of the kingdom, was promised. And then we get to this, that, that Old Testament, New Testament connection we see here of the New Testament of this, this country, the nation of Israel country, getting visited again on phase two of the kingdom coming. Remember back in the beginning of Luke, Mary and Joseph, manger, virgin birth, shepherds, wise men, angels come, they rip open the night sky, they, they, they scream, sing the glories of God to those shepherds, the glory of God comes, the king is returning and ascending on this earth on the first advent. First advent, remember that first advent? Um, God, the angels proclaim the glory of God, the incarnation of the God King Jesus visiting this planet as a baby. 
You see Matthew 4, 9, and 24, Jesus describing his ministry as proclaiming the kingdom of God. In Mark 1, the time to fulfill the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, is what Jesus says in Mark 1. Jesus and his cousin had rhetoric of the kingdom all throughout their sermons, and that's what they were known for. Palm Sunday, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they're throwing all their coats and all the palm branches down. That's what they did for conquering kings who liberated a city that was under captivity. But he's not a king, but he looks like a king. It's branding of a king, and he comes rolling into the city like a king. And he goes right up to the temple that he's king over, he's lord over, and he, and he causes a commotion. Remember, flipping tables and telling people off? Yes. <laughs> later on, later on, the king is crucified. The king is dead. He's buried. His followers lose heart. They scatter. The kingdom is over in many people's minds. They're having midlife crises. The king is dead. And then on Easter morning, resurrection morning, the king defeats death and rises from the dead. And then a few short chapters later, and the great, the great commission is handed out to the, the people, the place, and the rule of God throughout the entire world. And then if you go to the end of your book, the Bible, towards the end, there's this thing called the second advent, revelations, and it kicks off the kingdom of God physically, the kingdom of God 2.0, bigger, faster, stronger kingdom of God. Advent 1 is a meek and mild savior, poor, humble Jesus, Advent 2 is like blood-soaked robes, swords, you know, riding on horses, angels, ripping open heaven. It's the same guy, Act 2. So you're like, there's this understanding of the, the culture at that time of the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, and even the disciples. They want a physical king. They, want, they have a physical people, they have a physical place, Israel, and they have an occupying forces of Rome. They want a physical liberation from the Roman occupation forces. And they want to have a physical thing they can build. They want a physical thing they can vote for, a physical king they can follow into battle, a physical king to throw and overthrow Caesar and get their country back. They want a physical king because they have a physical problem and they have a fight ahead of them. And even the disciples were, were completely confused by this. You see that in some of these passages that we're going to look at today in Acts and later on in different passages. They're like, are you the king? Are you returning? Is this your time to reveal yourself to everyone? They all were wrestling with this Messiah, Jesus, and what he was doing for the people. They thought, that's our king. Water to wine, heal that raise the dead, blind can see, feed thousands of you know, people, stop, cop, he controls weather. That'll be useful in battle. Our swords won't go dull. I bet if soldiers die, he'll just walk through and raise them all again. And then we'll keep fighting. We're the zombie, our Israelite army that never dies because our king is able to, if that's what he can do to his friends, what can he do to his enemies? They were getting excited. They had a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God would be. Liberating forces against the Roman occupying army. And we look at verse 20. Luke 17, verses 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In the midst of you. So when he speaks to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the inwardness of the kingdom of God, not the externalness of the kingdom of God. But then when he speaks to the disciples here in this passage, you see he shifts their expectations to the outwardness of the kingdom of God. This internal change and growth results in an external change and growth for the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were confused about this kingdom paradigm, this kingdom rhetoric. And you see that in Luke 19, 11, they supposed that the kingdom of God was immediately to appear a few chapters from now. And then Acts 1, 6 and 7, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you do at this time, restore the kingdom of Israel? He asked them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus was being clear, but they still were not getting it as people. The followers were thinking, earthly, physical kingdom. And I'm going to run a district of Israel. Hopefully, that district. I don't want to be the district manager of that district. Let's go, Jesus. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? They thought, like, this is our political party. We're rising to power. And we're going to ride this horse as long as we can. Let's go, Jesus. They didn't want the kingdom of God. They wanted God to fix the kingdom of man. They wanted an outward person to fix their problem of their places they had, their power structures they had, their reigns they had of evil occupying Romans. They wanted all that fixed. So what should you see in this text? The first two verses. One, the kingdom of God is, is not coming in ways that you can observe. I call this the invisible kingdom. It's invisible initially. And two, the kingdom of God is within you. That's the main part of this passage that we're looking at. Those first two verses, the kingdom of God is invisible and the kingdom of God is in you. So let's look at invisible kingdom. So Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. And I love this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He says, the kingdom was standing, the kingdom was standing in their midst, in the person and work of Christ. The irony here was huge because they were arrogantly and unknowingly asking the kingdom's king, indeed the king of kings, when his kingdom would come. The Jews thought this kingdom would be physical, land, occupying forces. And they thought it would be a political, cultural change to their society. I mean, St. Patty's Day is in five days, right, y'all? Five days, and then we're all going to be Irish in five days. So lucky we don't have that problem in American Christianity where we think political organizations, political forces are going to fix our country. Uh, Democrat, Democrat Party is not going to fix our country. Republican Party is not going to fix our country. Neither man-made structure is going to usher in Christ to fix the globe. Christ will visit the globe when he's ready to visit the globe, is what we're going to see here in a little bit. So I believe in voting for ethics and all that, yes. But we have people today that still get way hyper-worked up about man-made structures. That same thing was happening in Jesus' day. Jesus was setting up a new political movement, a new kingdom is coming, and it's invisible. It's invisible initially, and it builds momentum in the lives and minds of men and women. We're in the invisible season of the kingdom of God while it's growing on the, around the globe, and it will be visible here in the not-too-distant future. The problem of Jesus' kingship, his kingdom, was not due to lack of signs. Everyone saw Jesus and knew his signs. I said this a little bit ago, but the power, word, and deed of Jesus was was the main point of this book, was writing down what Jesus did, Luke's account. No one could handle Jesus in a debate. His wit, his presence, his intellect, his knowledge of the word of God and people and power structures, he throttled all of his enemies, chapter after chapter, roast after roast. He gets in a tweet fight after tweet fight and lights people up throughout this entire, all four gospels. They couldn't hang up mentally. No one can debate the powers of like controlling nature, 
like the, the wind and the waves obey him. Remember those things? Remember how he controls like feeding people, spiritual forces had to obey him. Remember those demons he'd be cast out? He'd help the physical world of like sickness and blindness, all that, this natural world, the demonic world, even like life to death. He did so much stuff. His power was not at questions. They wanted to use that power to fix their broken world. But Jesus came to set a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So phase one, invisible kingdom. Verse 22, we start to see the visible return is what we're going to talk about. So the invisible, we're shifting to the visible return, the second advent. Verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. It's common at this time for the Messiah to be viewed as a warrior king, which led Israel into battle against their enemies. Verse 23, they will say to you, look there, look here, but do not, do not go out or follow them. So when is Christ's exact return? If someone thinks they know, they do not know Christ's exact return, Christians. There's many famous people who claimed it and named it and they were wrong, and many infamous people who claimed it and they were wrong. I don't know when Christ is coming back, Christians. But I do know we're 17 minutes closer to Christ's return, Christians. And I know that day is coming. The day we're reading about, the day of the reckoning, is coming for all of us. But I do know we're getting closer and closer. Dan and I, a couple weeks ago, were, were uh, talking to some people that were making some potential plans for our church as members to chew on here in the future. And this car came up and stopped, and they rolled the window down. And this lady asked if we had any Bibles. And, you know, we were shaking hands, saying hi. I'm like, I'll, I'll help her, you know, keep the meeting rolling, Dan. So I came to the back of the building here. And I said, pull her out of the back. And so she pulled her out of the back. And she came walking in. And she's like, do you have any Bibles? And I'm like, yeah. But when she gets out of her car, out jumps a pit bull with this massive head. It comes trotting right up to me. And it's standing right here, like if it's head. I'm like, that's the biggest pit bull I've seen in my life. She comes walking up behind the pit bull, and I'm like, yeah, we got these two Bibles, one of these blue Bibles and a one-year Bible. I'm like, yeah, I got these two Bibles. Will this do? Were you looking for one of these things? She's like, yeah, those will both do. I'm like, great. I'm like, is there anything else I can help you with? She's like, do you have any more Bibles? I'm like, yeah, like, come on in. And so we came into this auditorium, and I grabbed two more blue Bibles. I'm like, so this is what we have. We're hoping to buy some new ones in the future here in the next couple months, maybe, who knows. But, you know. Here's some more. She's like, I'll take them. So she's up to four Bibles. I'm like, great. She's like, do you have any more? I'm like, we've got a hundred Bibles in this room, but we're using them. So maybe in a couple of months, if you give me your info, we can contact you and let you know. But what is this for? Is this for like a giving to people or a Bible study? She's like, nice and sweet. She's giving stuff. And she's like, the rapture. And she starts walking out the door, grabs two more Bibles and walks out and takes a right. And so that was a couple of weeks ago. And so... She said it was tomorrow, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? So we don't know when Christ will return, but we do know he is 19 minutes closer to his return than he was at the beginning of this sermon. So look at verse 24. This is wild. For, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So the first advent was meek and mild and non-earth-shaking. Remember, teenage virgin girl, the manger, poor Bethlehem, poor, impoverished Nazareth, not a big fancy. The second return of Christ 
is a 2,491-mile lightning bolt around the world with thunder, pearls of thunder and lightning. Everyone will see it. Verse 24. Eschatology is a science and study of the last days. We are called to be listening, be watching, and be ready for Christ's visible return. It is coming, Christians. The kingdom of, of God is coming in power, and no one will miss the second time around. The day of the Lord is coming, is what we're going to continue to read about here. If you've heard of the day of the Lord TikTok challenge, with parents scaring their kids, I'm making this up, but if you parents want to scare your kids with scripture, you can look at Isaiah 13, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 30, Joel 1, Joel 2, Joel 11, Joel 31. There's some scary verses in the Bible that talk about the day of the Lord coming. We're called to live your day here and now with one eye on your last day. And let's be very clear. Your last day of existence, if that's today you die, or later next week you die in Brian East Hospital, or God comes back between here and there and <laughs> the end of your life. When you die, your eyes will close, or the skies will be ripped open, and the first thing you will see is your face of Jesus Christ. And that will elicit a response of terror and trembling and fear if you don't know Christ. And if you do know Christ, respect, awe, worship, Healthy fear. But don't, don't miss what I'm saying here. You will see Christ in this life or at the end of your life. You will be face to face with Christ. And he's not coming, a teenage daughter, baby, Jesus in a manger. He's coming drenched in his robes, drenched in blood, carrying a sword with the armies of angels around him. He's coming to completely disrupt the people on this world the place of this earth, and the reigning rules of kingdoms around this world. Because he's coming to flex on this planet the way that he says he's going to flex in the day of the Lord, the day of God's reckoning. Ultimately, your life will end with you face to face with Jesus Christ. And you're either looking in the eyes of your Savior, which I think the Bible says like burning hot white you know, hair, burning eyes like flaming eyes of flames, like terrifying. He's your Savior, your Lord. Or he's you're been a poser and he's not your Lord. He's not your Savior. Or your life now is in pure open rebellion to him, privately or publicly, and you will give an account for every thought, word, and deed. That day is coming, the day of the Lord. Look at verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is speaking about his next agenda item, his rejection, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Palm Sunday, Easter morning. You know, when your parking spots are taken and there's a bunch of people here, you know, that's what he's talking about. Easter morning. And that's what we're living for, church. That day, when you're face-to-face -face with Christ, not today. We were at a conference a couple weeks ago as a church, many of us, and uh, we're planting a church with Country Bible Church in Hickman, Nebraska. And Dean, one of the other pastors that was going down there with Sam, our guy, uh, to plant that church, Redeemer Bible Church, he said... Uh, he made this great comment about your best life now. You've all heard that phrase? Let's get some hands up. Best life now? Where have you guys been? Come on, best life now over here? You all heard that phrase? Good job, people. All right, so if you're a Christian, that is not biblical. Your best life should not be now. 
If your best life is now, you're in trouble. Your best life is not now. Jesus suffered, rejected, was humiliated, and died. We are going to walk through many trials, is what the Bible says. Here, living in Lincoln, Nebraska, following Christ here and now, in this invisible kingdom, with a, with a visible judgment pending and coming, we will have to suffer and walk through many trials. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So scholars will tell you what was going on in the days of Noah. There's an explosion of human population. That's, that's relatable. That's happening in our world. There, number two, there's an increase in depravity on earth. That's happening around the globe and around our nation. There's an increase in wickedness. That's happening around the globe and around the nation. There's an increase in callousness of heart. There was, they did, had unheeded preaching. They blew off Noah. Has he preached the Bible and God's wrath and judgment coming? They blew him off. New Testament authors describe Noah's generation as a typical evil generation, but none of these things listed are inherently evil. They're just, these people are completely materialistic. They're so wrapped up in their ordinary life pursuits, they had no room for the idea that God would interrupt their ordinary, normal lives with an extraordinary event, a global flood, which every continent on this globe talks about. Every historian, archaeologist around the planet talks about the global flood. I have a neighbor who's remodeling his house, a young guy, I'm sure he's doing a great job. But you hear construction sound and noises all around the clock. Different days he takes off, you know, but you hear him working one day at different hours of the day. Every blow of Noah's hammer would have echoed as a reminder of the preaching and pleading of Noah that they would repent and get ready for God's coming judgment. And then we, likewise, in verse 28, is a parallel literary term. So these two passages are being linked together. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. So this is another example of an evil city with an evil culture and an evil generation. A depravity and wickedness that's rampart. Another example of people too busy to be convinced. And they were caught up in the details of this present life. And then Sodom underwent uh, a day of the Lord version reckoning of you know, fire and brimstone. A biblical Hiroshima went off on Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about that in the Old Testament. And Lot's wife, she longed for her previous life in Gomorrah and Sodom. She lingered and she looked back and ultimately she was lost. She turned to a pillar of salt. The point of emphasis of these two parallel stories is that Jesus will interrupt your normal life, the normal pursuits of people. But believers have a new normal in this invisible kingdom, knowing that the visible judgment of God is coming. Personally and corporately on this planet, they need to keep an eye on the king of that kingdom. An eye on the king of that kingdom. If you've ever, you all seen that Top Gun movie? Don't lie. Which one? Okay, that's a great clarification. Same actor, different decade. So, so they tell fighter pilots they wear these really tight fighter jumpsuits so that when they're going on all those G-force moves in a dogfights that can last a significant amount of time, uh, the G-force makes the blood go to your head and you pass out and then your plane crashes. Uh, 
there's a physical, mental, stressful thing of trying to shoot or be shot at is terrifying. And they tell soldiers when they're learning how to dogfight, always keep your paradigm on blue side up. So which way is the blue side right now, team? <laughs> Come on, get your hand, point like this, right? Blue side up. But as you're in a dogfight, you got to keep your bearings as you're chasing an enemy or you're being chased by an enemy to know which way is up. For us Christians, up is there and Christ will be there. And when we die, we will see him face to face. God's coming with a visible judgment on this planet. Verses 25 through 30 cover a warning that before any final appearing of Christ, Christ will be rejected, humiliated, and suffering leading up to that kingdom. And the followers, the followers of Christ all throughout the New Testament experience that same rejection, humiliation, and suffering. Because this is not our kingdom. Our kingdom is invisible and our kingdom is coming. For a Christian, dying is easy, but living is hard. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go, second service. We need to have an eye on the future and build accordingly. And suffering, rejection, and humiliation by life here and now is in line with what the Bible talks about in the New Testament church and what Christ experienced himself. Anyone who tells you that life is for the health and wealth and whatever you want it to be is lying to you. That's not Christianity that Christ explained. Jesus says this in John 16. I have said these things that it may be that, that it may, that it me, you've, I said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Other translations say trouble. But I, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Men and women, there is trouble coming for all of us as we follow Christ in a hostile territory. We're sojourners, we're foreigners, we're journeying through a land that's not our home. Our kingdom is invisible. The judgment of God is coming and we will be rewarded by our king. A singer-songwriter said this, unless the person speaking to you has holes in their hands and piercings on their brows, you don't owe them anything. Don't cling to the life here and now, men and women but live for the then and there of Christ's kingdom. Verse 31, what day is this talking about on that day? Verse 31, we're talking about the day of the Lord. Let the one who is on the housetops with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the fields not turn back. So there's a direct path to either flee from this coming king or you know, worship and run towards this coming king and greet this king. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife lingered and longed for her previous life, and she did not embrace the new life that was laid out for her. There's a visible reward coming with the king. God knows those who are his. But what we should see in these two verses, what we can't distinguish here and now, God will distinguish then and there. God knows those who are truly his followers, those who are posers and pretenders, and those who genuinely have a walk of God, have a genuine faith. Verse 34, I tell you in that day, in that, I tell you in that night, there'll be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. That's like a morning activity of making wheat for that day. One will be taken and the other left, and two will be in the field. That's a work middle of the day activity. One will be taken and the other left. And he said to them, where, Lord, he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather in. 
So this is, this is describing an instantaneous global action, how Jesus will enter the scene of mankind. Remember 24,901 mile lightning bolt around this world? Morning, noon, night events are all interrupted by Jesus as he brings in the kingdom of God. So judgment is taken. Does that mean the evil are left behind to be judged? Or are the righteous taken and the evil, are the evil taken to be judged or are the evil left behind? I don't think that matters. And Jesus doesn't seem to make that the main point of this text. But we should see a visible judgment coming. The death and vultures are considered a horrible fate for Jewish people to die. It seems like, it seems like they will be taken away to judgment. But when the king of this world comes and we have to face the king of the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your generation. This is a frightening day. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't give us dates, hours, and no speculation on when end time scenarios will occur. The main focus is the urgent need to be ready for the coming kingdom. The kingdom perspective is Christ is coming. As we conclude here on the kingdom of God, God's people, God's place under God's rule. We see the, the people, we see Adam was the first person and he wrecked paradise and wrecked everything for us. But Jesus was described as the second Adam, the last Adam, the new Adam. And Jesus is building a new paradise. The place, the Garden of Eden was our paradise lost. But Jesus is a significant sense, also was and is the place of the kingdom of God. That new heaven, new earth, new Zion. The location of the new kingdom is found in Christ. Jesus replaced the temple, the meeting place of God. He is that meeting place between us and God. The rule, Jesus was and is the rule of God. The indwelt of Christ became the place for God's ruling. So there's a warning here. There's tons of warning in this passage, looking at the end times. Right now, in the here and now, are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to the rule of Christ? We can't be passive in our purity, church. Statistically speaking, American Christianity and Christianity on the globe is doing horrible in its purity. We can't be passive in our purity, church. We can't belittle that and write that off. We can't be passive in our parenting. We can't be passive in our pursuits of the word of God, passive in your prayer life. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king of the kingdom is coming and he knows those who are truly his. Ultimately, we cannot be interested in saving face here and now, but we want to be interested in saving grace then and there, church. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The king of the kingdom is coming. It's an invisible kingdom now, but there's a visible return of a visible reward and a visible judgment coming. I, I think it's appropriate to chew on this, this hymn I remember hearing growing up as a kid. We used to sing it as a church growing up. It's this, this, this hymn that says, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus is the name of the hymn. Does anyone know that hymn? Hey, let's sing it. Do you know it, know it? Or do you kind of know it? You can spend three seconds pulled up on your phone right now. Turn your eyes on Jesus lyrics. Come on, all of you. And let's stand up. I don't want to sing it for you. We're going to do that together. We're going to sing a hymn. Don't tell the worship leaders. It's been my lifelong ambition to lead a church in singing a hymn. Pull it up on your phones. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And Dallas is going to start us off because he's got a stronger, better voice than I do. <laughs> and, uh...
turn around, they're right up there. <laughs> Amen, church. I think it's appropriate. I like to read the, the Lord's Prayer, and then I like to close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, you've been very kind to us to instruct us and coach us and reveal what we need to be focused on, Lord, about your invisible kingdom, with your visible return, your visible reward, and your visible judgment. I thank you, Lord, that you know those who are yours. I thank you that you are building your church in the hearts and the minds of men and women. I thank you that you're coming to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. I thank you that this is a visited planet, and you will return and visit this planet again. We just love you and commit this, the rest of this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 